Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Hey everyone, a quick note. I had originally planned to uh, split up this interview uh, into two parts, but uh, there were just a lot of difficulties in trying to get this um, off and running and trying to split, uh, split things up. So in the end, I just decided to uh, have the entire episode all together as one. So where I talk about that there are two parts to this, there isn't. There's just one. So uh, with that, I hope you enjoy this um, episode. I did enjoy actually taking part of it. Production wasn't as fun, but I did enjoy um, being able to interview uh, with both uh, Ben and Drew. So I hope you enjoy this episode. See ya. The Great Methodist Schism. This is episode 115 of Church and Maine. Church in Maine. This is the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. And I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. You know, it's been a while since I've really introduced myself, so I'm just going to take a few moments here to tell you who I am. Um, I am um, an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and I pastor a congregation, a Disciple of Christ congregation in Roseville, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis. Um, I was trained as a journalist, and I've had probably about 15, 20 years of experience in uh, communication, um, social media, websites, all of that. Um, And so, but that training as a journalist has remained with me, so I kind of look at religion, especially mainline Protestantism, progressive Christianity, where I am kind of found with a critical eye, um, and so that's kind of the point of this podcast is to look at mainline Protestantism um, from a, a, a unique perspective um, and to kind of look at the stories of things that are going on. So, as I said, I am Dennis Sanders, um, and this is a podcast on religion and public affairs. Um, and recently I was surfing the web and I stumbled across a story about... Um, Um, St. Andrew's United Methodist Church, which is located in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, The 6,000-member congregation voted this month to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church, which is one of the largest denominations in America. And St. Andrew is is only one of 500 Methodist churches just in Texas that have either disaffiliated or are planning to disaffiliate. 
at least, and that's according to the United Methodist News Service. The reason for the departure? Well, it's the same thing that has caused splits among the Anglican Episcopalians, Lutherans, and Presbyterians, and that is same-sex marriages and allowing gay clergy to serve in the life of the church. This, in a news uh, uh, quote, uh, news re- press release, uh, senior pastor Arthur Jones and executive committee chair Kathy King said this, while we have been prayerfully studying this issue, studying this for years, the time has come for St. Andrew to decide its own path. Now, many conservative churches, such as St. Andrew's, are decamping, and they are actually going to, um, to the newly formed Global Methodist Church. Um, St. And- Andrew, interestingly, is not going to join the Global Methodist Church, but will remain independent. Today, we're going to talk about what's going on in the United Methodist Church, how it got to this point, and what's the future for the church. I'm not going to be talking with just one guest, but actually two. Uh, Drew McIntyre is a frequent guest uh, here on Church in Maine, and uh, he is the pastor of Grace United Methodist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I will also be talking with Ben uh, Gosden, who is the senior pastor of Trinity United Methodist in Savannah, Georgia. And this is his second time on the podcast. And we had a great discussion uh, that is actually going to be broken up into two parts. The main part is about the United Methodists in general. And then we'll actually, there's a smaller part where we'll be talking about um, focusing on the former bishop and writer Will Willman, his role in the United Methodist Church, and what it means to be an institutionalist. Um, Just a quick note, uh, Ben had some technical issues, so we kind of had to stop and start a few times. I've tried to fix it the best I can, but if there are still some glitches, um, know that's what it is. With that, Let's listen to Ben and Drew. All right. Well, Ben and Drew, thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Good to be with you again, Dennis. And uh, Ben, we've uh, shared a lot of the same digital space before, but never actually interacted like quasi real people. So it's nice to, uh, to quote unquote, meet you in the most real way that we have thus far. It, it really is. I'm hoping the interwebs doesn't blow up now because we have had so much Twitter interaction that there's real people <laughs> on camera yes. and it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. So it is. Good to meet it you is. and good to be with you again, Dennis. All right. And good to be with you guys again, both. Um, I think this is kind of started things off is um, to kind of get your, your viewpoint on where things are at in the Methodist world. Um, We're kind of in this run up to the the next um, general conference, which is 2024, which is, um, the twice postponed general conference. Um, how are things, where do you th- see things going right now? Where, where are, are we in the world? And I'll uh, let you start, Drew. 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think we are in a sort of slow moving, you know, lava flow like schism due to uh, various and sundry uh, causes because, you know, there was this wonderful thing called the protocol proposed, which I liked very much. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the closest thing to something amicable, fair and just to all involved. Um, and it seemed to have some momentum, but after not, you know, after COVID and not having a general conference, not being able to actually vote on that legislation, what, what that's meant is that there is no across the board um, understanding of method of churches saying goodbye to the UMC. And so it's been up to basically individual bishops and conference boards of trustees as to what sort of um fees and other processes they want to put to churches that want to exit. So you have a mix of, you know, in my view, some conferences that are in general kind of fair and clear about their process all the way to some where it's almost impossible practically for the vast majority of congregations to, to leave if they want to. And in some cases, clergy being treated more or less fair if they want to go and some not being treated fairly. And I'm sure like, like Ben and many others, I have friends on the ugly side of this on both sides. I have friends whose churches are disaffiliating and they're struggling and and friends who their church is disaffiliating and they're remaining. And it's just hard. It's hard on everyone. Um, So it's, it's really sad and it could, it didn't have to be this way. And I'll, I'll stop talking there. Yeah. I think Drew's pretty spot on. The only thing, and I, I don't know if I would disagree with Drew so much as echo everything he said, but maybe say as a child of divorced parents, the idea that this wasn't going to turn out this way, I think was idealistic at best. Mm-hmm. This was, this, this was destined to be difficult. Um, I'm convinced. Now, situationally, does it have to be as difficult as some conferences are making it or some churches are making it? Probably not. Um, But as a whole, what we're doing is going through a process. And I know that that we can put an optimistic twist on its multiplication. It's not divorce and all that. But what we're doing is we're saying goodbye to what was in order to turn the page to welcome something new in, which means that something is is dying to make room for something new. That's what change is. I don't. I think we are are so, especially in the, in the main line, we are so shaped by the broader culture that we don't even know how to think and talk in other categories, aside from left and right, your side, my side. The only thing I would add to that is uh, I, I don't really watch much professional wrestling anymore, but I still sort of follow it. And there's a saying in the wrestling business that if it don't make dollars, it don't make sense. And um, the only reason that a denomination ostensibly built on uh, the grace of God and its various manifestations would be so at each other's throat uh, over this is because there, there are a lot of assets and dollars to be had or lost, which I think is the same thing you saw in the Episcopal church breakup. And, um, and I, the people who the people most dependent on denominational dollars for their livelihood are the people making the decisions about how gracious or not to be in these breakups and stuff. So a lot of these bishops and things like that, they're 
their salary comes from not, you know, as much local church funds, but like general denominational funds. So they have every incentive to keep as many dollars, et cetera, in the, in the pot as possible. And that's a little cynical, but it's also just how I see it. Was there a way, or, or do you think that we've come to a point where the, um, United Methodist, as it's construed or has been um, construed over the last 50 years, has kind of outlived its usefulness. One of my favorite seminary professors, Ed Phillips, said that you can always count on the Methodist church to be the cutting edge of 30 years ago. And, and, and the question for me is, in this phase of our life as an American institution, can we finally get ahead of ourselves and not be 30 years behind in figuring out what this next season of life is. I wonder, maybe we could, I mean, this is optimistic, maybe we could begin to model for the greater society what it means to disagree with each other, love each other, and and, and respect whether it is to, to hold disagreements in the same denomination or bless those who want to, to have um, a parallel denomination but a different expression. I mean, to me, how we treat each other in this is going to say a lot for the new season of ministry. Are we out to win or are we out to model what it means to love each other? So I don't know if I would say we've outlived who we are. I, I just think we're, we're having trouble finding, finding what traction on what that new, new season of what it means to be Methodist is. And how would you think about that, Drew? Yeah, I, I resonate with a lot of what, what Ben just said. And, and I love Ed. Ed was my advisor at Duke before he went to, to Candler. Um, I love Ed. Um, yeah, I, I do think we're overdue for something. You know, there was a big effort, I believe in 2012, the call to action to try to restructure us denominationally and reemphasize the local church more and um, all those sort of good missional alignment, all the good buzzwords and things. And I think it actually would have been good, but it turns out that there, there are so many different um, entrenched groups that the one thing, the conservative wing of the church and the liberal wing of the church, and if you want to call it a different wing, the institutionalist wing of the church could agree on is um, not to not to change significantly. So that failed badly in 2012. So something has had to give this in particular, the sort of the sexuality debate, marriage debate in the church, the last 10 to 20 years, I think has really boiled over. And if there is going to be something new in the life of the church, this question has to be settled in some fashion because it's eaten up a lot of our energy and resources um, at the denominational level and, and everywhere else. I'm, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as Ben is about if our denomination can be the the model of how to disagree well. I think the local church can do that. I think yeah. that's very possible in a local church setting. I've seen some of that happen at my church and, you know, I'm in a place where I'm, um, we had a kind of a, I did kind of a town hall meeting recently about what's happening in the denomination. Yeah. And my church is, is um, mostly progressive folks, you know, moderate to progressive folks, but we have some conservatives there. And, and I was very careful to say, you know, this is, this is not a story of heroes and villains of good guys and bad guys. There are people of sincere faith that love Jesus and love their neighbor that disagree on this. And we're going to be a church where we're staying in the UMC and 
Uh, we're going to love our, our members of the church and our neighbors who are LGBT. Um, and if you're someone that's still trying to figure out how you, you know, how you understand all that with the Bible and uh, your, your understanding, we're going to love you in the midst of that and want you to be a part of this community too. And it went great. And it was, you know, people were affirmed in that. And we had people stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm more conservative, but I love this church and I want to be here. And we said, we love you. We want you, you know, that can happen at local level. Um, the problem is, as Ben very put, put it very well, for better or for worse, we tend to uh, mimic the larger culture. And as soon as you get a bunch of people that don't know each other in the floor of general conference, it gets nasty very quick. Why do you think that we want to have heroes and villains. I, I shared this story. I grew up um, many different flavors of Baptist before I um, came to the disciples. Um, and I was in a church um, in DC that was a American Baptist um, and Southern. And it was at a time in the early nineties when, especially within the American Baptist, um, the issue on sexuality was also kind of roiling and they decided to call um, an, a, a pastor there that had been a member, but to to the staff. Uh, and she was someone who was very much in favor of LGBTQ inclusion. And there was controversy. And one of the members um, in the congregation who was kind of from the, the more evangelical part of that congregation stood up and said, we don't agree, We, but she's my friend, and you know we want to, to support her. Um, I don't see that type of thing happening in anywhere in our culture, especially the church. And it seems that we do have to have, want to have heroes and villains. Why, why, why is that? Why can we not find a way of seeing someone who disagrees not as, a, as an enemy, but as a, as a fellow sister or brother in Christ. Either one. I mean, I'll, I'll say I've really enjoyed the work of uh, Jonathan Haidt. I think his work is pretty important for mm -hmm. where we are in the U S right now. And I, when I teach, um, I teach Christian ethics on occasion at different places and I often will start with him because he gives this interesting, his sort of whole kind of moral foundation psychology, I think gives us some neutral ways of thinking about how different people understand and construct their own morality. And I, and I think absent something like that, because we are discipled by cable news and pundits and podcasters not not us, of course. We're the exception, um, because oh, we're discipled. <laughs> yeah, be, because we're discipled by that and that those sort of vicious habits. I think we often are not capable of seeing each other as anything but pure heroes or pure villains, and certainly that's been the case. I mean, you know, uh, if you follow Methodism on Twitter. It's, it's a wild, it's a wild time as I'm sure you've both seen. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think it has to be that way, but I, I think it's another way in which, you know, the, the main line tends to go with the culture for better, or for worse. And in this instance, it's a for worse. Yeah. I think, um, 
That's a great way to put it, Drew. I think that um, we're, we're formed by story, you know? So to a degree, good guys versus bad guys has been a part of our formation since we were young. You know, it's easy. It's easy to put people in categories, good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's what we're formed by. I think there's that, but I also think it, it, it's easy and lazy <laughs> and um, not surprising that when we don't take the time to do intentional hard things like build relationships, we are more prone to put people into those categories. So take the story that you shared about the, the local church story. That's actually not an uncommon thing. I know a lot of churches who are trying to reconcile when they say, we want to disaffiliate, but we love gay people. Now, I tend to fall in the category that says, I don't know if you really know what you're saying here because you're saying two different things with what you're wanting to do and then what you're saying as a local church. But for them, they, they're like, but we've got, we, we, we would love a gay person who came here who we got to know. Well, all they're saying is once we put a person on an issue, we're going to love the person. Mm -hmm. my, my issue is why don't we do the hard work of putting names and faces on issues more so we can try to avoid this lazy way of, 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 of villainizing um, each other. Because for most of us, even in our difference, we know that we don't live in a world of black and white. We know there's nuance to everybody. The issue is we're just too darn lazy to actually, you know, make the effort to get to know it. So it's a lot easier for me to say, you know, that Drew McIntyre, look at what he tweeted. Now I'm going to assume 15 things about him over one tweet. Rather than like saying, let me get to know this guy a little bit, you know, surely. And, and, and we're always more complex than our online personas portray uh, or the issue or the single issues that we may or may not support. So it's, it's, it's on the one hand, formation by story and on the other hand, lack of formation in, in a discipleship that says, I need to make an effort to know and love you before I judge you. There's a, a great TED talk called uh, The Danger of a Single Story. Y'all have probably seen it. Mm. But it, it gets at this, that, this idea that if we know one thing about a person, we know everything else about <laughs> them. And, and, you know, what I often say is that the best thing about uh, about Twitter is that it's not real life. Mm -hmm. and in, in the local church, you do have people who yes. are complex and, and disagree on things but still lo love each other and, um, you know, are, are in the midst of figuring stuff out and, um, I think that's, that's so crucial. Um, I think Ben's right. I think if, if you, there's a laziness to the heroes and villains narrative that, and we see it a lot in the UMC and we see it on both sides, right? So the, a lot of times what I see is progressives can't picture UM Methodist conservatives as anything other than sort of the hardcore ultra, uh, you know, Calvinists who, don't believe in women in ministry and are complete fundamentalists, right? Which is actually kind of hard to find in the UMC, even among our conservatives. By the same token, conservatives have a hard time picturing folks to the right of them as anything but sort of John Spong, you know, crazy liberal types. And they'll send a video, they'll, they'll see something crazy on the internet and send it out and it represents all liberals or all progressives. And uh, so we, we, we do that, I think, because it simplifies things. And if you're trying to raise money and raise hackles, then it's pretty effective. Oh, yeah. Do you think part of it also is um, 
you know, in our in in the wider culture, we have a lot of groups that, in some ways, rely on this kind of polarization. I mean, they they feed off of it and and literally make money off of it. Um, is that happening within the church? Are there groups that basically this is their livelihood and and that this is a you know for them to to continue you kind of have to kind of keep the fires burning yeah i mean there's groups i don't i don't know if we want to go through naming them but but yeah there's there's interest groups who have who have uh emerged um over the years um that that fuel help fuel this help push this um money a uh, good bit of money, you know, goes into them. I, I, I think the generous thing to call them is parachurch uh, mm-hmm. groups. <laughs> um, but yeah, they yeah they exist. Um, everyone's got a good motive to help restore the United Methodist Church, but everybody's got their own bills to pay too. And survival is is the utmost goal. Yeah, and the institution has it as well, right? There's this, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, again, maybe I'm cynical, the, the hashtag BUMC stuff, I find very uncompelling. Um, the, I don't know, everyone's got an agenda. And I, I say this to my church when we're talking about it. I say the first thing you have to know is there is no one that's neutral in this conversation, including myself. No one is unbiased. Everyone, you know, has a stake in it in some way. And so beware of wherever your information is coming from, because, um, you know, even all the, I'll give an example of this and Ben, feel free to disagree with me because a lot of people do, and that's fine. One of the common refrains we're hearing in the UMC right now, especially from bishops and denominational leaders is there's nothing to worry about because our doctrine doesn't change. Right now, to be fair, I, from my view, some conservatives are overstating this idea that like when the, when the conservatives leave, then within 10 years, the UMC is going to start hating Jesus and denying the resurrection. Now that's all overwrought. Now there are examples you could point to that are troubling. Um, but the response to that has been our doctrinal standards that are in the book of discipline never change. They can't be changed. And we're going to always believe these things. The problem with that is it not as, is that it's, um, it is true, but useless. It's not a lie. It's that the doctrinal standards don't matter if they're not actually functioning as standards in our seminaries, DCOMs, boards of ordained ministry, if they don't actually function as guardrails for us. It doesn't matter if they don't change. They just have to be ignored. To me, that's a little bit propagandistic, the way that those have been touted as, don't worry, nothing's going to change because we have standards on paper. To me, that's an example of the uh, the overstatement on, I'll say, the institutionalist side of things, but it's happening everywhere. And how is, um, you know, what has brought about this fear of changes in doctrinal standards? I think what what people are responding to is. So I'll say this, I've heard, um, 
I, I know a lot of GMC folks, WCA folks that are that are really good people, super honest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've also heard from folks who were at these meetings what I would call at best overstatements. Hmm. Um, and it's something like a professor at one of our seminaries said X. Ergo, the next preacher you get that comes from that seminary is probably not going to believe in the resurrection or not believe in the Trinity or whatever. Um, so this notion that because a particular uh, a particular person went off the rails on doctrine, that the whole church is heading that way. Some of that stuff has been overstated. As a response to that, the bishops and others have been saying, well, we have doctrinal standards, and uh, which is true. It's just kind of a useless data point. So I guess one of the things I want to um, am curious about, I mean, we've been talking about the, the UMC is to talk about the, um, the global Methodist church. What is, I'm, you know, from what you, from what both of you have learned or as um, in your respective conferences, what is it all about? How are they going to be, uh, governing themselves, how are things turning out so far? My conference actually has already named a provisional annual conference for the Global Methodist Church, the South Georgia GMC. Uh, okay. A few of my friends have joined it. Um, I think there's a president pro tem now who's a good friend. Um, you know, they haven't constituted yet, but they're they're having the beginnings of the makings of of sort of functioning as an annual conference. I, I assume if someone's moving, they're, they're going to try to do appointments this spring. Um, I mean, the GMC, really, the book of discipline is not that different than the current UMC discipline. Um, I mean, there's some jots and tittles here and there. And, you know, my friend who's our president pro tem of the GMC would probably say, you know, there's still things up to be decided. Like it's not written in stone just yet. You know, there's, <clears throat> it's still in process and formation and, and all that's fine. I mean, I, I and this is where I kind of have a little bias. I, I believe the GMC is forming to solidify people's views that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman only, and that ordination uh, is to be observed by um, uh, heterosexual or non-practicing homosexual persons. Those are the two main drivers forming it. And the reason I say that is the GMC Book of Discipline, other than those two things, really are not that different than the current UMC discipline. I think there's probably some clarity around some theological language with, with um, uh, vi- you know, the vision for ministry and beliefs. Um, I think there are some very brilliant scholars in the GMC who are, are taking this as an opportunity to really build upon some, some language to add clarity to, to their theology, which is not a bad thing at all. But from a practical standpoint, um, I mean, there's some little things here and there, but again, I, I'm careful not to say these are written in stone just yet because I think some things could change or be be applied differently. Um, and I have some friends pushing pretty hard for some clarity around things like sacraments. There's a lot of practical theologians in the GMC in the early days forming these things, and 
it, it, it it's doesn't it's like a square peg and a round hole when you get people who are overly pragmatic trying to trying to define how to administer the sacraments. <laughs> what I just said is very is too very ad, administration is a practical thing, but it comes from such a deep and rich, mysterious theology that needs both clarity and depth. And all these things that that the pure pragmatist among us are like, yeah, I don't have time for all that deep. Theology. Let's just let's just say we're going to not baptize babies, or let's say we will, or let's say we do dedications, or let's say. And I got friends who are like, dude, I'm Wesleyan, but you better get some clarity around these sacraments before I join your 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 denomination. So there's a lot of things in flux um, mm-hmm. still. I think there's some interesting things like term limits on bishops. Um, more localized authority and appointment making, um, more flexibility around connectional giving. Although, Drew, this is where my cynicism comes out. All my GMC friends are like, we're not paying apportionments for two years. And there's not, I'm like, talk to me in 10, 15 years. <laughs> talk to me in 10, 15 years when y'all, when y'all actually have people you're paying for whose jobs it is to keep your connection together and talk to me about how you don't have any apportionment still. You're going to have something. If you're going to be connectional, there's going to be money involved that at some point you're going to have to say, yeah, guys, we kind of, otherwise you're just a congregationalist movement and that, and they don't want to be that. And I appreciate the folks who are pushing to say, no, we have to be connectional here. Um, so, so I'm skeptical that the, the, the flexibility on apportionments are going to be long-term. I think it's a nice thing to get you in the door I also, I also contend, now this is just speculation from me, there's a selling point on, there's no trust clause in, in the GMC. That's another one that I'm like, mm, talk to me in 10, 15 years and tell me that there isn't some involvement of property and accountability at some point. Because how else do you ensure that a church stays accountable to a connectional body? Now, I'm sure there's all kinds of arguments, whatever, but I'm just saying practical purposes, I think some form of some property involvement could probably come into play for the GMC at some point, just like I think some form of connectional giving will eventually increase to some point. Did I leave anything out, Drew? No, no. I'm glad you got to the the poly differences because I was going to say that the theology outside of the marriage stuff, I think you're, you're correct. Yeah. There are some, and I said this to my church at our town hall, look, there are things the GMC is doing that I I think are, are right. Like I, I, a dead horse I've been meeting for a long time is that our version of itinerancy is something that was irrelevant 50 years ago and should be done away with. I think our, what we do for itinerancy, how we deploy clergy leadership is is stupid, frankly. Yeah. Um, I think I was in a meeting one time where I actually said to some big muckety muck, like, I don't want to hear about innovation from people that are committed to this system that was outdated 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Just for those who uh, are Methodists, how would you define itinerancy? Sure. Itinerancy, you know, goes back to the John Wesley going on horseback from, from community to community, spreading the gospel in the American frontier under Asbury and his, his followers, um, it was the system where itinerant elders um, were were sent from place to place. You know, usually a, a what's called a circuit, mm-hmm. um, instead of being in one place. So your preacher didn't 
have a local church, the preacher went from this community to this community to this community. And the best thing about that was it encouraged a lot of lay ownership and lay leadership. Um, it was also a system that was designed for single men on horseback who died by 40. Yeah. Um, it was not designed for uh, cler- clergy couples, um, people who were married and had kids and families. And um, if you're wondering if this is personal to me, it is because as I was going through the ordination process, I kept being told that um, having a spouse who was also a professional was um, uh, somehow made my calling less than or made me less committed to, to my calling. And I took it a little bit personally, so I still feel feelings about it. Uh, but that's what we mean by itinerancy. So it's what now what it means is Ben and I, when the bishop calls, we have to go where we're sent within the bounds of our conference. Um, with depending on your context, little to no maybe input from either the clergy person or the the church. It really depends on the bishop and the DS. Is that is that a fair description? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think spot on. Um, so I, you know, I think the GMC not having that, I think makes a whole lot of sense. I think clergy and churches should have, you know, more say in who, who comes because, you know, my DS who's awesome has like 150 churches. There's no way she can know the culture of all those places and who's going to be a good fit and, and who's not. Um, so that's, that's one example. I have a lot of respect for, there are some really brilliant minds in the GMC and some of my friends and professors or people that help write that provisional book. I think they call it the book of doctrines and disciplines. Um, so I, I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, how things go in the future. You know, one of the things I keep being struck by is um, how many of my colleagues are deeply concerned and bothered by the formation of the GMC. <clears throat> and I've been a little annoyed at people who never seem to be bothered by the continual failure and dwindling of the UMC are deeply concerned about the formation of the GMC. And I, to me, it's just total distraction. I, I would much rather try to build in my own house than worry about what else, what someone's doing in a, in a new place that they're going to bless them, let them go. We're going to be neighbors. We need to be able to get along the same way that, you know, tech and ACTA are Anglicans in America. We need to be able to get along and love each other. Yeah. Why do you think that people get upset about the the GMC? And I've seen this in other. I I was serving on staff in a, um, a local presbytery on staff, but you know not a Presbyterian. But you know people were upset about that body that was created out of the the split from the um, Presbyterian Church USA. Is it that they're just mad that people are leaving, or that the money is going, or, or what? is it that makes them all upset? I think we're always jealous of the new thing. It's jealousy. You know, I think there's, it's insecurity and it's jealousy. You know, we, you know, that, that meme where the girl is walking and the guy's walking with her and he's got his head turned and there's a pretty girl behind him. And it's always like a thing about like, you know, we're, we're the girl who's walking, you know, getting jealous that some clergy and churches are looking at this new thing going, Ooh, I want to be a part of that. Um, and we can call it all kinds of things, but you know, I think there, there are some nuances to how we handle it that some have not always operated with the utmost integrity. And I think that's problematic, but I, I just think we get hurt feelings because change is hard. Um, 
you know, by the same token, you know, GMC folks or message boards or videos, I don't know where all this stuff roots from anymore, but, you know, spreading things like, you know, the Methodist church is about to deny the virgin birth and the Lordship of Jesus. It's like, no, we're not. You're just saying stuff now to, to just frighten people. Like, to me, and, and I feel this way about both institutionals who want you to stay UMC and GMC people who want you to go is, if you feel like you have the truth on your side, then why not just speak it openly and honestly? Why do you have to either make up stories or spread falsehoods or, or, or try to shame? Just tell the truth that you think you have. You know, I, there, there's all kinds of ways of manipulating conversations. You know, we're not going to allow this. We are going to allow this. And I'm like, if you're up there telling the truth, why do you need to fix the conversation? Yeah. Just speak there, it. There are plenty of issues in the UMC without having to make some up. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I, I'm with you there. I mean, don't please. We're going to affirm the Apostles' Creed, but there's a whole lot of other things that we need to get to working on like yesterday. <laughs> Well, that actually brings me up to the next question is then what is the future for the UMC post schism or breakup or whatever we're calling this? That's a good question because I mean, which part, because I I think the the quote unquote post (laughs) is going to last for probably the next two quadrennia. Hmm. I don't think we, we, I don't think we get to the post until 2028. That's me. Um, I think, I think what we have begun is not anywhere close to being finished in terms of splitting. Um, My speculative assumptions are that two things will happen at the 2024 general conference. And this is about all the room they have for parliamentary procedure and committee work in a two-week span. We're Methodist, which means that we're very methodical, which means we love nothing more than to make everything a uniform process, whether it's our hymnal, our book of worship, we'll make everything uniform as best we can. And so I think General Conference 2024, because people say, what do you think, you know, will the language get dropped? I don't think so. I think what will happen is they're going to take what's happening in, in spots and circles in certain areas of the connection and try to make it uniform. And so paragraph 2553, which has an expiration date on it that has the terms and conditions for disaffiliation, I think they will try to, quote unquote, make it the law of the land and, and make the process of disaffiliation more uniform so that a church in South Georgia, which really follows very stringently paragraph 2553 and nothing more, that that the same process can be held in another conference where right now they're adding cost and, and, and hurdles and fees and things like that. So I think they're going to try to uniform the process to leave, to say, here's the window, here's the process, everybody has to follow the same thing. By the same token, there are areas of the connection that currently are observing a season of abeyance where uh, weddings are happening, ordinations are happening, same-sex weddings and LGBTQ ordinations. And basically the conferences are turning a blind eye saying, we're just, we're giving abeyance, no charges. 
So the language hasn't changed in the discipline, but the abeyance is in effect. I think an abeyance across the board is going to happen as well, which would then put the power into the hands of the local church and the annual conference. Churches would then choose, are we going to do weddings now knowing that our pastor won't have charges for this season? Or will our annual conference board of ministry put up LGBTQ um, uh, folks for ordination and will we pass them? So that's where the two things are handled. And and that abeyance, I think, is going to get um, put into effect across the board. I don't think any language change happens until 2028. Drew, do you think it happens differently? No, I mean, your, your guess is as good as, good as mine. And um, I think you're right that it's not going to happen quickly. I think in terms of the UMC in the next 10, 20 years, probably the most impactful thing will be what do the majority of the African conferences do? Mm-hmm. Cause you really don't know. People think that, well, Africa is more socially, theologically conservative. So they're obviously going to leave. Well, it's actually much more complex than that for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. Um, very complex. And so we really don't, don't know. Um, I think that'll be the most impactful thing in terms of when does language change? If so, um, what does that look like? Uh, things like that. I, you know, I, I suspect that in the same way that we're sort of following the Episcopal and PCUSA and Lutheran playbook, but 10, 20 years later, I suspect it'll be the same thing with us. And and what that means is um, further institutional decline, most likely uh, on the, on the broad scale, Um, possibly we'll find new things to fight about. This has been true. And, you know, in the PCUSA, they moved on to, uh, to fighting about divesting from Israel uh, mm-hmm. in their funds and various things. So unfortunately, I, there are some people need something to fight about. And so we'll probably find some new things to fight about. I still believe that, I still believe in connectionalism. I still believe that denominations serve a purpose. And if you don't listen to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, mm-hmm. um, I often say that the um, the only thing worse than organized religion is disorganized religion. <clears throat> Um, so as frustrating as denominations can be, um, as I told my church, like we need to have some kind of accountability. There needs to be someone above your pastor that if I go off the, you know, go off the rails one day um, that can, you know, or have some kind of deep personal crisis, there's someone that says, yeah. hey, you need to take a take take five and take a break for right now. Um, so as, as in some ways cynical as I am about the institution, I do still see it serving a valuable purpose. And the other piece of this is, and I tell this to my friends all the time, I have some friends who are like, you're, you're staying, but you see all these things about the UMC. And, and yes, I still feel all those things about the UMC, but it's also the place to which um, I'm called. It's where I was baptized and ordained, and it's where I'm, I'm called to be for now. And there's also nowhere to go. There's not some kind of problem, uh, whether it's the problems of old institutions, the problems of new institutions, the problems of no institution. Uh, there are no problem-free situations. It's just a matter of choosing what set of problems you want to deal with at any given time. Yeah. What is going to happen with um, agencies and things like seminaries, um, you know, p- publishing house with the Cokesbury or some of the other things? Are those, is there something that just has them as a part of the UMC or, or do they choose or what happens? I think a lot are broadening some 
regulations and rules. A good example is the United Methodist Women renamed themselves the United Women in Faith, anticipating that they wanted chapters in both denominations. Hmm. Westpath, our, our pension agency, they've been ahead of everybody for 10 years. Westpath quietly announced, I think 10 years ago, uh, Drew, you may know better, that, that they just quietly said, hey, y'all know we can support more than one denomination. And at the time, everybody said, oh, you mean in the pan-Wesleyan movement? And now they're going, no, nah, we meant when you guys split, because <laughs> they knew it was coming too. Um, seminaries are going to be fine. They're all, they, you know, the good news about United Methodist seminaries, for, for many of them, there's a few heavyweights who have so much endowment money that they will navigate and can almost operate independently. Now, some smaller seminaries will, will struggle and need to kind of navigate how that unfolds for them. Um, a lot of the conference-wide agencies, you know, or I'm a part of a couple in South Georgia. I'm sure Drew's part of some in North Carolina. They're already beginning to talk about how are we going to have a board that's made up with GMC members, UMC members, so that our vision can can cross. Mm-hmm. I mean, they sort of know these things are kind of coming. I think the smart ones are going to get ahead of it to say, how can we grow and really use the split as a multiplication? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those who get too doggedly, you know, um, in one camp or the other, have, they have to be careful. Um that they don't end up marginalizing themselves out of a future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example of that, I think it's happening in most places, but like we have a, a conference foundation, which is where a lot of Methodist mm-hmm. churches have their endowments and investments. Like, like my church does uh, same thing with Westpath. Those agencies are, are saying, Hey, if you go GMC, we can, we can still be your, you know, your investment people will still uh, take care of your money for you. Um, I think denominationally, there were recently some big budget cuts passed. I mean, a, a lot of that denominational infrastructure has um, is I think is struggling because apportionments and giving is is I think has been consistently down. Um, and ironically, one of the things they tried to do in ten years ago in 2012, with a call to action, was to pare down a lot of the denominational structures and bureaucracies. Um, and we're doing it now just, uh, you know, in a, in a slower and less intentional way. So I think a lot of that stuff, publishing house will still, still be around, but, um, but probably struggle. Um, yeah, I think there's just gonna be less, less things to pull from. It'll be interesting to see if the GMC does their own publishing house or if they sort of use seedbed as kind of their, yeah, I don't know. And the GMC has a couple of seminaries that I would imagine would would kind of migrate that way and sort of be quote unquote GMC seminaries. Not not that they would affiliate so much as GMC friendly seminaries, mm-hmm. kind of give them a niche in the market. Um, people don't like market language, and I get it. But I mean, this is capitalism at work too. I mean, th- this is this is the free market playing out. I mean, you know, you 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 either find a way to continue in the market, you you broaden your customer base, or you find such a good niche that you know that you're not going to have a customer base drying up anytime soon. Or you do what the Episcopal Church has done and make their, you know, seminaries only able to serve Episcopal students and they're, clo- they're you know, closing <laughs> rapidly. A lot of those tech seminaries are, are dying off fast. 
You know, even like, you know, Duke, for instance, and United, I, I'm, I went to Duke for my MDiv and United for my DMIN. And both of those places have said, you know, we are already a pan-Wesleyan uh, an ecumenical institution. We're going to continue being that. We want to, you know, like like Duke has an Anglican House of Studies that has both tech people and ACNA people. I think Duke and a lot of other places are going to still try to serve both GMC and UMC folks. Now there's some seminaries where I don't think GMC folks are going to go to. Um, I don't think that we need 13 seminaries. I think some of them probably need to need to say bye-bye. In some cases, you have a, a seminary with a very large endowment and very few students. Um, they might they might hang on, but I don't think we need, there's no way that we need the same number of seminaries that we had 40 years ago. Um, but some of that will sort itself out. Yeah, Candler has done, I'm a double Candler uh, degree and Candler's done the same thing and there's so much endowment money. And I mean, they their dean was quoted recently in saying, of course, GMC students are going to be welcome here. Um, I think Drew touched on it though, you know, um, will GMC students choose to go to every United Methodist seminary? I don't know. There's probably going to be some that they're going to migrate toward more than others. Just like there's going to be more uh, UMC post separation, UMC folks are going to migrate towards some more than others. That's the market working itself out, you know, and that there it's on the, it's on the seminaries to do a good job of creating a broad, um, a broad base. I, I also, I love a good ecumenical seminary. Candler has Anglican studies, black church studies. I mean, there's a number of different studies there. Um, but I also don't think a seminary necessarily has to call itself a one-stop shop for all. You know, it's okay to specialize um, sure. in certain things. I mean, that's where that's where the market will kind of work itself out too. So, yeah. I think some of that too will be, I mean, in the next few decades, <laughs> Are we going to keep requiring MDivs? Uh, if so, for whom? I mean, I I suspect that again, if things continue apace, then we'll see in the UMC more what we see in the AME, AME Zion, in Baptist circles where you have more and more bivocational clergy, and and less and less emphasis on a three-year professional degree that a lot of folks can't afford at the rate that clergy are paid in most places. I think you'll see more. Um, Things like course of study yeah. um, that are ways of educating clergy outside of that three-year master's paradigm, which I love and value, but there's fewer and fewer churches that can afford clergy with that kind of education and debt. And there's interesting hybrids sort of on the horizon, too. I'm convinced when St. Paul Seminary had to sell its property, they then moved into the property owned by Church of the Resurrection. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced Adam wasn't just doing that to to do do you know do a solid for a seminary. I think that that if needed, part of the long range vision of Church of the Resurrection would be some kind of formal theological education and beginning a relationship that could just eventually merge over time into what could be a new way of doing seminary. Oh, I definitely, I, they haven't said it publicly, but I definitely think Church of the Resurrection has tossed that idea around. Um, so it could be some interesting ways that we look at how do we educate pastors moving forward. I mean, there's interesting, creative things out there. There's certainly plenty of evangelical, non-denom examples of mm-hmm. uh, pastors that started their own quote-unquote Bible colleges or seminaries. Hopefully Adam would do it, and I'm sure he would with more integrity. Uh, yeah. He's the next Jerry Falwell and St. Paul's the next Liberty. 
But uh, that model exists. It just hasn't been predominant in the main line. Right. Well, having gone to the leadership institute at Church of the Resurrection, I could see that type of happening, um, which actually would, would be a sea change of seminary kind of, I think one criticism, especially of mainline seminaries, is that sometimes they haven't always served the church well or been connected as well to the church. And here is one that's literally connected to the church um, and could be something that could be very beneficial, um, not just for, for Methodists, but I think um, throughout mainline Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Ben and I had you know experiences somewhat similar in that we both went to seminaries that are still very focused on training local church clergy. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of seminaries, especially mainline seminaries, that I would say are, and it's, again, for market reasons that you name, Ben, they're as much about producing clergy for the local church as they are producing chaplains or nonprofit specialists or you know, community organizer, sort of public activist, mm-hmm. uh, kind of all the above. Um, so I think that really varies place to place. Ben and I both went to places that are very much uh, trying to produce effective clergy for the local church. One and of the things I I'm also, most... Go ahead. go ahead, Dennis. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I also went to a seminary, and that was a Luther seminary in St. Paul mm-hmm. um, that's very much geared towards um, the local church. Um, it's a seminary nearby uh, another mainline seminary which would be united is very much very different um it, it would be more the activist kind of route um for united um and that's it's not my cup of tea but that's kind of where they're they're headed and that you're talking about united of the twin cities is that yes, correct I'm sorry yes united of the twin cities different. which is a, a, a <laughs> yeah which is a united church of christ seminary and, and as opposed to united in in ohio which is united methodist yeah yeah, yeah very different <laughs> i'm sorry i interrupted you ben no i was just in a similar vein going to say that i one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of recently out of uh my alma mater at Candler is that um, they they have recognized through the success of the online doctor of ministry program, which has done gangbusters. I got my DMIM through that, but they now offer a fully online MDiv program. And, mm-hmm. and part of that is to be able to reach local church pastors to let them stay in the local church to do their ministry while they get their theological education. So we have the benefit of, of an intern right now at my church because she's in one of their, their first cohorts um, mm. for the MDiv. So um, yeah, I mean, just, just trying to have, trying to have that heart for the local church and, and Candler also has gone through seasons that, that there were complaints that it was getting a little too uh, ivory tower. Um, but, but I think there's been a pendulum swing back now toward, you know, we got to get people out of here and, and into the local church. So, and it was that way when I was there too, it, it was, it was moving in that direction. Well, I want to actually move on to, um, in the time that we have left, something that is, uh, of interest to me, um, and it's kind of talking about one of the leaders in the UMC, um, that's well known, and that's Will Williman. Who Speaking was, of the academy, uh, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who was? Uh, yes, because he was actually the um, head at Dean Chapel at the at Duke Chapel. Why I say yep. Dean Chapel? Duke Chapel um, um, later became the um, bishop, I believe, of North Al- the North Alabama Conference. 
Um, And so he's had a, um, he's made his mark in the church. Um, I think um, his niche is very much um, kind of post-liberal, that he very much shares a lot of things that I would say would be more on the liberal side of the church, but also, um, at least from my viewpoint, has a kind of somewhat orthodox understanding of the faith as well. Um, but I wanted to get your opinion about him and how is he his effect on the church? Um, because of course, I'm when I look at Willem and I'm looking at him from as an outsider, um, non Methodist. What has his role been within the church, or do you think his role ha- has been in the church um, as uh, Methodist pastors? Drew, I'll let you feel that first since you're 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 a dookie. Yeah, I'm uh unfortunately that is our nickname. Um I'm <laughs> I'm curious I'm curious to hear Ben's answer because you know it's it's easy for me to think that that Will's had a major voice in the church because he's been so connected to Duke and so many of our our clergy in, in my state, my conference have been either taught by him or uh you know discipled by his books and things like that. Uh, I mean, you know, Will's, I think for a long time, was on a lot of lists of most effective preachers in America, et cetera, et cetera. Been very influential, particularly the book uh, Resident Aliens that he and Hauerwas wrote together. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he was he's not formally a scholar. He certainly um, has the chops to be a scholar if that was the vocation he'd chosen. Um, he wrote a, a pretty advanced book on Bart's preaching. That's probably the most scholarly thing he's written. Um, he, I don't know, I don't think he pastored that long, but he became Dean of the Chapel and was Dean of the Chapel of Duke for a long time and taught there, wrote a ton of books and then was later a Bishop. I I think for, was he only a Bishop for one term or was it two? I think it was two. Was it two? Okay. Um, and I I heard varying reports on how much people enjoyed having, having Will as a, as a Bishop. Um, what I think has been interesting about Williman and I've seen this with a number of leaders and and I'm trying to say this in a charitable way, you know, Will always presented himself as a bit of a radical in in various ways. Um, You got that sense in resident aliens and and other stuff, you know, Will's got that classic, like he comes off as this folksy Southerner, but he has this like acerbic biting wit, you know, that, that comes back to, to get you if you're not looking for it. Um, And it's brilliant in a lot of ways, a great communicator how he's, you know, he always presented himself as this radical, and especially with that piece in Christian Century about the the UMC breakup. I, to me, a lot of folks that I thought were sort of radicals have turned out to be more institutionalist than I would have guessed. Um, and I, I would put Will in, in that category. I, I don't know that I disagree with a whole lot in his piece in particular. I just don't know what his goal was, because if his goal was trying to convince people not to break up. I don't think he was very successful. If his, if his goal was to find some, you know, win some way to encourage people not to, to lean out rather than to lean in. I, I, I don't, I don't know what rhetoric classes he's taken, but I don't think he was convincing anyone um, to, you know, to, to take a second thought before stepping out the door. Um, that's my two cents. You know um, he's uh an older bishop, he's seen a lot more than I have, so there's probably stuff he knows that I don't. I just don't. I just don't know what 
he thinks he's serving other than getting applause from the people that already agree with him by a piece like that one in Christian century. Yeah. Um, I was a big Williman fan at Candler, big Williman and Hirewas fan. So the post-liberal thing, I guess, made me a little different. Um, you know, you get into your different theological traditions. Um, Candler tends to be a little bit more in the, the, the uh, Niebuhr uh, tradition, you know, the, the, this how does one <clears throat> pastor and, and, and lead, but, but do so within a society and the church. And, you know, there's, there's also within Candler's tradition, um, theologically, you know, there's a lot of influence from, from, from a number of scholars in the, the, the various, uh, I call them the ist traditions, you know, that, that have emerged, um, you know, um, womanist, um, just ver- various different traditions. And part of that is to kind of bring in all these different voices of, of, of corrective um, uh, thought so that the academy is shaped by more than just old white men, which turns out is really a good thing that, that we don't have just old white men uh, shaping the academy. Um, so, so at Candler, you know, the post-liberal thing, you know, it was a little different. And um, of course, Hirewas and Willem and two white men, uh, there, there was some suspect with, with friends and we had a good time bantering back and forth about it. Uh, I think that I loved that, not, for, not so much for Willman and Hirewas in retrospect, but how they built upon traditions of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth. Um, Barth is probably for me, the most influential theologian of my, uh, academic upbringing, um, and I also say that um, now as somebody who's 10 months in recovery um, uh, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous and in, and in recovery from alcoholism, that the 12 steps themselves that, that has given me a spiritual transformation over the course of this year, you know, comes from the Oxford Club that Bill Wilson got fascinated with. And the Oxford Club, you know, has definite theological ties and and, and similarities to um, the Bardian tradition. You know, the second step to say that that a power greater than ourselves is all that can save us—that's Karl Barth. You know, mm-hmm. that God is wholly other and comes to us in a salvific way, right? So that's where my fascination with Willeman kind of, you know, building on that for a contemporary age you know, sort of came out. I, I'm kind of withdrew. Um, Williman, uh, in many ways, is the Flannery O'Connor of the church, you know, to tell such a folksy storytelling way that has this punchline, you know, um, like Flannery O'Connor, that someone's going to get shot or uh, or the grace of God is just going to shock you to death or, you know, that's what Williman aims for. And and, and there, is, there is a theological truth to that, that God's grace is shocking. That it that it that in order for us to change, we have to be shocked into it a lot of times. And so I've always appreciated Willman for that. I, I tend to be a little cynical. I think Willman, I mean, Drew, I, I, I'm probably more cynical than you about the Christian Century article. I loved everything Willman had to say. The whole article was wonderful. What do I think the ultimate goal was? Will Willman has had a standing invitation that pretty much anything he ever wants to put in Christian Century has gone in Christian mm-hmm. Century. And it's not accidental that that article is a synopsis of a new book that launched some 45 days later. Willeman gave mm-hmm. you a primer to his new book he's selling. 
on the split, period. Like, I think I think it was a great, it was a wonderful article. I, I loved it. I disagreed with parts of it. Just like Williman is the scholar, just like Williman is the bishop that I've heard, you love him one minute, you hate him the next, but you appreciate him for how smart he is. I think the article was just a great celebration of who he is. And, and, and then at the very end, now go buy my book that's coming out if you want to read more. Like, I think it's a great sales pitch. <laughs> and he was masterful. Yeah, it was a, it was a trailer for his upcoming. Uh, Absolutely upcoming was. Yeah. He sold more books well, than any Methodist pastor could ever hope to sell. So he's he's no dummy. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think um, in setting this up, we I talked told you I had listened to um, three podcast episodes of um, the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast with him. And it pretty much was just exactly what you just said. It was kind of a preview of his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of the same thing. He's a master just, storyteller too. Yeah. Master yeah. storyteller. Will Willman oh, yes. is for the world what I think the, the, the he, he embodies what the South is for the world, which is mm-hmm. this complicated, quirky, brilliant people formed by fire and story and mm-hmm. he conveys it to the world. And I love it how he, he comes in with these and you think that accent and that old man, little gristled voice. And then the punchline is so good. And it's like, yep, that's what, that's what the South can give the world right there is Will Willem. <laughs> what, you know, what, what you said about the, that what you loved about Willman and Hauerwas, a lot of that was, was, their connection to someone like Bart mm-hmm. resonates a lot with, with me too. And it's, it's important to name that when we're talking about post-liberalism as a theological movement, mm-hmm. the liberalism there is not so much what we think of as political right. liberal, as no, no political no. ideology, but more, it means something more like modernity mm-hmm. or enlightenment. Um, it's very much connected to Bart. It's associated with the Yale school, people like uh, Hans Fry, George Lindbeck, um, Lindbeck's The Nature of Doctrine is sort of the, the main kind of book that leads that movement. People like Willimon, Hauerwas, others, a lot of folks ended up at Duke, studied at Yale with those folks. And it's a very significant, I think, theological movement. It'll be interesting to see if it lasts another generation. But at its best, what I liked about it, and this is very true for Bart, is you know Bart, Bart took a baseball bat both to sort of, you know, liberal, small L, liberal German theology, modern theology. And he also was very much not in the fundamentalist camp, right? Mm So I've always thought of myself as a Bardian in the sense of not being either fully comfortable with the sort of modern liberals and not comfortable with fundamentalists. And so I like Will and Hauerwas. They're at their best when they're refusing these categories and complicating them for us. Where Will has disappointed me in, I think, recent years is, again, to me, he just sounds like we're in this polarized church and this person who theologically has been so good at resisting categories and complicating things when it comes to his actual leadership role in the church, he sounds like one more bureaucratic functionary defending the system. And I just really thought he was a more interesting person than that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and they're they're post-liberal sort of twist was born in the late 1980s 
And a lot of it was in response to the um, neo-Christian coalition type movement where conservatives Mm -hmm. pushed the government. And as Willimon has said numerous times, I love the phrase that, that, you know, they embodied, you know, that every time the church gets in bed with the government, we always hate ourselves the next morning. (laughs) <laughs> and so that that neoliberal expression is really born out of a how can the church function as this city on a hill inside of a broken nation, not how the nation is the city on the hill, but how the church is the city on the hill um, that shines with light and 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 carries the flavor of salt. Um, that was what what I fell in love with Willimon and Hirawas for. It, it is fascinating because in a, in a going back to the academy. You know, in many ways, Hirawas became very much the institutionalist in how he shaped Duke Divinity School, which since he's retired, Duke's had some upheaval of culture and things. And a lot of it is coming out of how Hirawas was so influential with how the academy was shaped while he was there. And Willimon in a similar way to how the church um, was shaped and, and formed. And, and, and it's almost like they carried this dirty little secret that they wanted all of us to be a bunch of radicals and resident aliens, but they were really in on the, the institutions themselves. <laughs> well, the, the irony there is that, you know, uh, Howard Wass ended up an Episcopalian. Yeah. Right. And for, for all of his stuff about, uh, you know, the, the poor and power, I mean, how can, <laughs> how could you imagine a, a church more aligned with American power? Yeah. Uh, now, all that said, like a lot of my teachers, even in undergrad, were students of Hauerwas, and I'm, uh, I'm in a lot of lot of debt to that whole line of thinking. Uh, but I do think, again, like same thing for Hauerwas, the the challenge is where the rubber beats the road. It's been true for Williman, and I just, I think as a bishop, I don't know that he's been able to be the um, the outspoken outsider. Uh, in the way that he thinks he has been historically. Hmm. I when I kind of just to wrap things up here is one final question because you talked about him being an institutionalist. Um, is it necessarily a bad thing to be an institutionalist? I say no. Drew might disagree. Um, yeah, I think there's some, there's some nuance to be had there. So in the same way that, uh, the Yale historian of Christian thought, Yaroslav Pelikan said, um, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Mm -hmm. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, which I love that turn of phrase because I love tradition. I don't think I'm a traditionalist. I think we need institutions and institutions have value. I think I heard, um, oh, who was the, uh, the first things guy? Um, R.R. Reno? No, before him, the name's escaping me. The Catholic that used to be Lutheran. Oh man. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Newhouse. John Thank Richard you. I think Newhouse. Was, yes. Yeah. I think it was Newhouse that said, um, you know, institution is just a term for something that has social endurance, right? Something that lasts longer than a generation is an institution. Uh, we need institutions. Institutions are valuable. I don't like how reflexively and unthinkingly anti-institution, anti-institutional our culture is now. Mm-hmm. All that said, I believe in institutions, but they're you know, in the same way that I, I love and value tradition. 
I'm not an institutionalist in that um, what I see as an uncritical alignment of my beliefs with whatever best serves the institution. And what I see in a lot of my, my colleagues, especially again in the sort of hashtag BUMC, like, like the existence of the GMC doesn't mean that everything in the UMC is awesome. Does that make sense? Right. Like just because there's this thing over here that I disagree with doesn't mean everything in my, in my, in my camp is great. And so that's what I mean by institutionalist, just sort of reflexively defending the institution that you're a part of um, in a sort of ad nauseum way. Okay. Well, thank yeah, you I, both. I, this was so, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I, no, I, I was just, right ahead. just quickly to piggyback. I, I'm kind of withdrew. I, I, I always think about Nadia Boltz Weber said, you know, you can't innovate a tradition until you, until you're deeply immersed in it. And so insofar as the tradition shapes and forms us, I appreciate the institution. Now, how that plays out in everyday matters can be frustrating. Um, but that endurance piece is huge. And to be a part of a, an institution that can endure is not nothing. Um, do I always love it? No. In fact, I, I, I'm going to pull this one from one of my favorite uh, uh, NFL uh, pundits is Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk. And Florio just went on a rant one day about how the, the league office got some scandal wrong and they were basically covering up to protect and all this. And Florio said, you know, the reason he's an ex-lawyer and he's like, the reason I am so hard on the league office is because I love this game so much. And I want to see this sport be the very best version of it. Absolutely possible that the sport changed his life and he wants to only see it move forward. And every time that they cover up scandals and stuff, it's holding it's holding the sport back from being what it mm -hmm. could be. And so my only frustration with institutionalism is if we can't get out of our own way to be the very best denomination and tradition possible, because I'm so grateful for, for what it has been, for what it is, and, and hopefully for what I can help it be. Um, so if I'm critical, it's because I love it. Uh, and I know, and I know Drew's the same way because we, we, we trade barbs and have a good time on Twitter and, and, but I know deep <laughs> down, you know, it's a church we love. Um, and so, you know, we can blow off steam and be critical, but, but at the end of the day, hopefully it comes out of a deep love. Yeah, that's, that's where we'll put Ben, the, the, the fire needs a fireplace but it has to stay about the fire and not the fireplace. And that's the sort of tension I think we're, we're naming. We need to tend the fire. You have to have a fireplace to do that. But the point is not the fireplace. The point is the fire. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that that is a great place to end this conversation. Ben, Drew, thank you so much. This was even with all of the glitches, a very um, enlightening conversation and I'm glad was able to uh, have this time to chat with y'all. Good to be with you, Dennis. You too, Drew. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah. Nice to, to get to chat, Ben.
Well, that is it for this part of the episode, episode on the United Methodist Church. Uh, stay tuned for a smaller part, a bonus episode, where Ben and Drew will talk about Will Williman and institutionalism. And um, also, before I uh, let you go, just a reminder that it does take a lot to make great content like this available to you. So I hope that you will consider making a one-time or regular donation to Church in Maine. And you can do that by going to uh, uh, the website at churchinmaine.org. That is it for this episode of Church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Godspeed. And we'll see you soon.